watching The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here, of course, with Kale Brooks. Uh, I think, as you have probably deduced from the title of this video, uh, this is, unfortunately, the last episode of The Jacobin Show will be airing. Uh, the reason we are wrapping up the show is actually a little bit anticlimactic. Um, I think you guys know that uh, Paul Prescott and Ariella Thornhill, who were our co-hosts, uh, had to drastically scale back their involvement earlier this year. Paul, of course, ran for office. He now works for the Teamsters. Ariella was on maternity leave and, you know, has three kids and multiple jobs. And uh, basically, we went from, at the start of 2021, having Anna and Nando on weekends and Ariella, Paul, and my Myself and of course, Kale on the Jacobin show. Uh, it went from, you know, being a huge operation, so to speak, uh, to being just me and Kale. Uh, and, you know, I guess I should say for my part, um, I have a few work commitments and a few different freelance projects that are ramping up right now. Uh, in particular, I am working on a book, which is going to be out uh, spring 2024 from Verso. So you may be hearing more about that uh, in the future at some point. Eyes on um, that eyes on that. Uh, but this is all to say that, you know, it's 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 crazy to think about this, but it's been almost two years since we started The Jacobin Show. Uh, obviously, you know, it, it has been like totally an honor to get to do this. Um, because this is the last show, I will say, I, I will make a confession, which is that I actually don't really like being on camera that much. But I think getting to interview, uh, you know, people who I think are some of the smartest and most interesting people on the left has beyond made up for that. Uh, so, you know, of course, I, I have to say thank you to everybody who has ever appeared on The Jacobin Show. Uh, it's been a total pleasure interviewing everybody. Um, obviously, I want to thank, you know, Bhaskar, Ramike, and Jacobin for having faith in this project uh, from day one and kind of letting us do our thing. Uh, of course, thank you to the viewers, uh, anybody who has ever watched one of our shows. Uh, and of course, thank you, uh, you know, especially to the YouTube members. Without you guys, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do this for two years. Um, and of course, I have to thank none other than my friend Young Kale, who I think you all know has been the producer and editor behind every episode that we've done of Jacobin and of The Weekend Show. And I should also say, you know, has like we've worked closely together uh, throughout this entire process uh, brainstorming. So, you know, Kale's really been kind of my partner in class reductionist crime since day one. So thanks, Kale. It's been my pleasure, my utter pleasure from the beginning to the end. Um, before By the way, I, I also I also want to say um, I knew ba I've known Bhaskar for a long time and I've mm -hmm. kind of been in, you know, the Jacobin orbit uh, for a while, like as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason why I got involved in the first place with the video stuff is because one day Kale, who I didn't know very well at the time, texted me and was like, would you like to interview Walter Ben Michaels? And the rest is history, right? Yeah, cat catnip for you. That was an easy <laughs> right, get. That right. Was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Wait, before. Thank you. Before I get back to you for just a second, I want to add to our list of people that we need to thank uh, Michael Brooks, um, that obviously uh, late, great Michael Brooks that we miss dearly. We, you know, holding in our hearts still today. Um, 
he this was actually his idea initially the show um that uh in fact i wouldn't be a jacobin at all if it wasn't for michael that um he was kind of the reason why boscar said all right yeah i guess we'll start a youtube channel um it's because of michael and and his kind of insistence on on starting this work uh and so i owe all of this to michael but also michael wanted to create this other show in addition to the weekends um which obviously he had started with anna kasparian um that um it was going to be called Jacobin and Friends. We then turned it to the Jacobin shows. So here's Jacobin and Friends, I guess. Um, and so, the, I, you know, part of part of putting the show on was to kind of carry forward his legacy, try to kind of um, continue the politics that we had been talking about, but also the politics of Jacobin more broadly. That like, um, I'm, I'm not trying to say at all that we were speaking for Michael Brooks by any means, but that this show to some extent was kind of his his initial idea, and so. Um, I tried to find the three best people I could find to talk about left politics in a serious way that actually had completely like universalistic material analysis, um, universalistic politics and, and uh, uh, principles and, um, you know, actually kind of embodied, I think, the best spirit of kind of uh, a left political culture. Um, and uh, I had to go outside of the existing left media sphere to pull Jen, Ariella, and Paul. Um, and I'm extremely glad that I did uh, because I think the three of you have been uh, the most brilliant left media commentators that we've had. So um, segue to saying it genuinely has been a pleasure working with you, Jen. And um, like I, I am like deeply, deeply proud of what we've created. That I, I, I hope that like this what we've done actually remains useful to people. Um, so hit like and subscribe and share and hit yeah, share yeah, the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please continue to do all of <laughs> yeah, that. Um, but... Obviously our videos, you know, will will all be on the Jacobin channel. Uh, you know, we're, you can always find them there. Um, I, 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 you know, do want to say really quickly, um, there will be things forthcoming from uh, the Jacobin channel. One of the things that will be coming out over the next couple of months is a new history series uh, that looks at some of the different ways that liberals and leftists have understood uh, different pieces of American history and what those kind of mean for politics today and why it's so important, actually, as leftists to get the history right. So stay tuned for that. Like I said, that'll be rolling out over the next couple of months. Um, and then finally, I just want to say, you know, for our YouTube members, uh, number one, again, thank you so much for, you know, uh, having our backs basically uh, throughout this entire operation. Kale and I will be doing one last Q&A for members uh, this coming Friday at, what is it, we're, we're saying 5, 5 p.m. Five, Eastern? 5 p.m. Eastern, mm -hmm. um, all of our spiciest takes on everything. Right. Um, you can, it's actually kind of more of an ask me anything. So like come in, I mean, we're going to be talking politics, not, you're not, you're not getting the real, the juicy stuff, but you, we will, we will answer just about anything. Um, so like come, this is for the members, come in, we'll talk and hang out and, yeah. um, and, yeah, then, and if you have like questions about the memberships or, you know, what's coming next, we can also answer some of that. Uh, so definitely, you know, if, if you can make it, tune in. Um, if not, and you're a member, the video will obviously be there for you to watch later. And you can leave us comments uh, uh, on that video as well. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess we'll just get to the show. But um, last thing is just, you know, uh, thanks again uh, and love you all. And um very, very proud of the show, and I, I hope uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did, at least, which was a lot, just so you know. Likewise. Likewise.
All right. So I am now joined by Jane McAlevey. She is, of course, a labor organizer, a senior policy fellow at UC Berkeley's Labor Center, and the author of many books, including Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, No Shortcuts and a Collective Bargain. And actually, we have just gotten news that Jane is going to have a new book out early next year called Rules to Win by Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. She has unveiled the title for the first time here on The Jacobin Show. We're pleased to see her as always. Jane, great great to have you on again. Really nice to see you, Jen. It's always good to be here. So, uh, you know, we, there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, I think the last time you were on The Jacobin Show, the first Starbucks location had just voted to unionize. Uh, we're a year out from Striketober of 2021. Obviously, a lot has happened, uh, but I think, you know, we always want to have you on because part of your perspective is that there are things that should have happened that maybe didn't, right? So maybe uh, start just by talking about your impressions from this last year, from Striketober 2021 till now. Uh, What exactly are the dynamics and trends that you think are uh, most important for us to be paying attention to right now? Oh, it's such a good question. And you're right. I mean, literally, there's like a bazillion things since the last time I saw you. Um, Though I think a place to start is to say, I'm not sure that at the end of the day, they change the fundamentals of what I think uh, or believe about the fundamentals of the work. So that's a bit of an opening salvo. Um, I'd say a few things. One, obviously, an exciting time in the sense of tons of energy, right, of workers forming unions. I mean, unmitigated joy um, with every single headline about every victory, um, every new turf that's being, whether it's REI, Apple, you know, all the stuff is really exciting. Um, And it's not just domestic, I should say, right? Because I work so much around the world right now. I mean, the real striketober is in the United Kingdom at the moment where Mm -hmm. balloting is happening across the NHS from the doctors to the nurses to the text to everybody in between. The university systems are balloting. I mean, there there is a series of strike ballots taking place, right? Postal workers, right? Obviously the real workers. So, but it's the UK, what's happening in the UK would be nice if it was happening uh, here, by the way. <laughs> we have national, national unions taking national strike ballots um, all over the United Kingdom right now. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, so I think that's exciting. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of that dynamic playing out globally. So it isn't just the US. And I know we're going to focus on the US, but I want to, I want to bring the global in because the fact is we are not going to beat these global corporations alone, and we know that. So I think watching the dynamic uh, and the benefit of me being involved in both a lot of union work in other countries and the Rosa Luxemburg hat versus my Berkeley hat in terms of the global training program means I'm really in touch with everyone from what's going on in Uganda to what's going on in Liberia to what's going on in England. So um, the colonizers and the colonized, uh, it's always fascinating. Um in one program. So I so on the US side it's both a really exciting time but there's all the regular stuff Jacobin audience knows. You know, I mean we've got incredibly high approval ratings, we've got a ton of energy and a ton of heat. Um and I think so that's all the great news. And the question is what are we doing about it? One, right? Like how how are we actually trying to manifest or capture or build on the 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 sort of moment that we're in, in terms of high inflation, angry workers, um, insane rent increases, all the inflation discussion, 
um, we know that they're already starting to turn to blame workers, right, on inflation as opposed to their everything we could get to. But um, so so really exciting, but also really dangerous in some ways, right? We've got a Supreme Court that is off the leash. Um, and I thought that we wouldn't have a significant labor case this year. And of course, now we know that they're going to come after um, unions, workers, um, in this new case about trying to force unions to pay for the cost um, of a strike. So I've really literally been saying to people for some time, I think there's really bad, really bad stuff coming from the Supreme Court. My assumption was that this cycle would be their obsession with getting the independent state legislature doctrine passed as a to kneecap what's left of, you know, sort of civil democracy, um, and that they wouldn't bother getting to unions until the 24 Supreme Court cycle versus the 23 cycle, um, and that I imagined a different case was coming. So I feel like this strike one uh, for most of the labor lawyers I spend time with, which is the best ones, I think, um, uh, everyone's a little caught off guard um, by them discussing this new case. So I think it's important to start there. Because that frames the power structure analysis, right, of what's happening in this country. And so if we start with what are we what are we up against, right? What kind of power is required to meet the moment? And we start with the highest court in the land, and then we move to that we're likely losing the House of Representatives. I mean, I don't know anyone who thinks differently right now. So we, we lose the House. We have a Supreme Court that's completely off the leash. We have a defunded, beaten down NLRB. It's like uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, depth of crisis in the midst of a ton of exuberance. Um, and I'll, I'll pause to let you decide which way you want to go with that because there's a lot of places to go, but I'll, I'll segue back to you, Jen, by saying what's really unfortunate, um, and not surprising, although I am endlessly surprised is the reaction or lack of reaction by the national unions um, and their failure of imagination to actually capture this moment. Um, so, you know, that's that's pro deeply problematic because we are heading into really uh, deep trouble. One, once we lose the House, once the, once the court gives, and I'm sure your audience knows the Independent State Legislature Doctrine case, uh, once they can change who the electors are in the 2024 election, um, and we start looking at the violence around us and we start looking at, uh, yeah. So it's like super exciting, super dangerous. Right. That's the right. moment that we're in. <laughs> right. Um, I, I do want to ask you about the UK unions and then sort of what we can extrapolate or what we can take from that uh, when we're thinking about the national unions in the US. Uh, but before we switch all the way over to the UK, um, I, I, I do want to focus on some US labor fights that you wrote about recently in The Nation. Uh, you, you had a great article that I think came out last month where you sort of made some comparisons between a few different uh, uh, recent labor fights. So of course, on the one hand, we've got the rail workers and the nurses in Minnesota. Minnesota, which I think, you know, everybody watching here has been focused on or, or, or knows about. Uh, and and uh, those fights have been really, you know, kind of high profile and exciting. Uh, at the same time, you know, they're still ongoing. Uh, those groups haven't won a contract yet. Now, you also talk about in your piece, uh, Seattle teachers and I think uh, Pennsylvania nursing home workers who uh, were successful and who have won contracts. So maybe talk a little bit about the sort of differences in these fights and um, why they have kind of come to different outcomes and and what we can take from, you know, looking at at, at uh, like these discrete labor fights together. Yeah. 
Great questions. Um, so uh, in the focus of the article, um, and I have to say it was one of those articles that I sort of woke up and wrote uh, in, I think, 23 minutes um, in one sitting and sent it in. And my editor was like, great, go in a copy edit. Like, can you do that again next week? You know, I was just... I, I, it's rare that I write like that. You know what I mean? I always say uh, I could run a national strike before I could write an article. Like writing is hard work for me um, and writing strikes is joyous and not hard. Um, or, you know what I mean? Honestly, like, so as someone who who has much later in her life developed a writing habit um, out of desperation, just because I felt like the stuff I wanted to people to know wasn't in books yet. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't start writing because I was like, oh, I want to be a writer. It was like, oh, why don't we have this stuff in books yet? Anyway, uh, methods. Um, I think that, that that moment was an example of, you know, <laughs> uh, missing the moment, people, right? Let's just start with the rail workers. I had been in conversations with some of the folks in the rank and file leading up to it, obviously. I'd been paying attention to what was happening at the Presidential Advisory Board um, as the drumbeat of the hyper, hype everything news media was going about the rail strike. Um, you know, I began to do some outreach and phone calls to people who I know in the ranks um, and was getting very clued in um, to the real issues um, and the machinations of what um, had happened at the Presidential Advisory Board, what was happening at it, the selections Biden even made to it. I mean, if you go back to the power structure analysis and you look at which slate of people Biden chose even to put on the presidential uh, board, which is totally his control, you know, he picked a panel of arbitrators and there was a whole alternative slate handed to him, by the way. Um, as a choice of different arbitrary, of different people he could have put on that board that would have been more organizing, focused, more balanced uh, in terms of thinking about the rights of workers to take collective action. And instead, just starting with who he put on that board, he chose a sort of safe, safer, more controllable kind of path of people to put on the presidential advisory board. So that was already, when I was getting into the details of the power analysis of that board, I was already getting, I could feel my blood pressure. Uh, that's metaphorical because I have very low blood pressure, but I could feel my like blood boiling more likely um, as I was beginning to get some of the backstory on who was on the board, how they had gotten there, that there had been several other, um, a whole nother slate of people proposed to be on that board um, who I think might have not let the tycoons of the rail industry off the hook so easily. Um, so again, that goes back to the power analysis, right? We're going to keep coming back to what is the power analysis of the moment, what power is required to challenge it. And then when you think, you, know, you start hearing the media drumbeat, like 60% of GDP is on the rail lines every day. And then you look at uh, President Joe Biden, who still claims to be, and people still have the rap. I don't have it, but have the rap that he's the most pro-union president in history. Um, and he puts pressure on union, 12 unions to settle without a single paid sick day. And they move 60% of the GDP of the country every single day. And the unions are willing to accept, the unions with that much structural strategic power, accept a deal with zero paid sick days, but a deal that's going to let them not be disciplined. I am like, you people could be negotiating for Medicare for all right now. I mean, if you really look at the power of shutting down the rail lines, and by the way, if people don't know this, we're also working on the West Coast docks with an expired contract, which means 
dock workers could decide not to cross those lines. And then we literally are talking about like a Green New Deal, Medicare. Oh, we'll just take one, right? Let's just take, right, we'll right. Just take <laughs> national health care, okay? Mm-hmm. We don't have to be greedy. We'll just take one major crisis facing American workers. How about a national rent control? I mean, Jesus, like you set these people settled for no paid sick days. So um, for me, uh, that was a moment of outrage, which is why I think it was a 23 minutes to type that whole thing. I was just like banging at my computer. I probably damaged it. I was so upset that morning. Um, and and again, you start to look at the swirl around it, which is the appointments to the board, who wound up on that board. How did that settlement come down in the middle of the night? What kind of pressure did Biden put on Marty Walsh to get that deal? Um, and how is it that we can literally be in a place where we're calling the president the most pro-union president ever, which, by the way, I want to say semantically should mean the most pro-worker president, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I don't even like the word union. It's like, what are you doing for the working class um, to allow workers who are responsible for keeping the entire economy moving and thinking it's acceptable that they don't have paid sick time mm-hmm. and that the deal to be cut was if they wouldn't be punished when they got sick, uh, made me sick um, yeah. as an organizer um, to my stomach. And then I think on the, on the on the Minnesota nurses and some others, you know, I sort of feel like everything we're doing right now um, should be seen as a structure test of sorts mm-hmm. for the power that's going to be required to not go even seriously further backwards um, when we lose control of the House of Representatives and when the Supreme Court makes a series of decisions that set us back even farther. I'm looking at by January of 2026, sorry, January of 2025. Mm-hmm. By January of 2025, the question I've been walking around asking people for the last few weeks, and so I'm going to ask it of your audience to think about, is it's January you know, 6th or the equivalent date, and it's 2025. Where are you? What have you done to prepare for this moment? And what are you prepared to do? Because when I ask that question to people right now, I'm getting deer in the headlights back for most people. Um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm writing an article now that basically is going to be called that, I believe, um, because I don't think we're focusing enough on where we're going very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you think about the stakes and the odds for the working class, and then you think about people who have probably more strategic leverage than any other group of workers, they need to be leading brilliant settlements, not caving for mm-hmm. unacceptable inexcusable settlements. Um, And so in Minnesota, what I tried to write about was, you know, it just, what I was hearing from the ranks again there, right? Talked to a lot of people in Minnesota fairly often, including from that union. Um, And I will just say that there was and is frustration about the lead up to the strike and the strike preparation. And of course, I got heavily criticized by some people for pointing that out and super sorry. Like we have democracy on the line, folks. And it's ugly out there. And so to me, every single thing we do is like a dress rehearsal for a really serious crisis that's in front of us. And I don't accept uh, at this point that sort of the more independent unions um, should be as uh, ill-prepared heading into a kind of action that's going to require really serious power. I mean, we're always going to come back to the power discussion. So I think that's 
I think that's what I was, I think I, I think I was, I had a sense of like being ill from watching what was settled for by some of the most powerful workers mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that, uh, you know, is kind of a perfect segue to talking about the UK, right? Because as you had alluded to earlier in the UK, uh, there, we're seeing a lot of, uh, very exciting, uh, labor activity. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the labor movement over there has really gone on the offensive at the national level. Uh, we, you know, have been watching the campaign enough is enough, which is, uh, you know, pushback against inflation and austerity. And so I guess the question becomes, you know, for, for those of us here in the U.S., well, first of all, maybe say a little bit about what you find uh, sort of most interesting or most useful about what's going on over in the U.K. and what could bringing uh, these fights to the national level look like here in the U.S.? Yeah. Good. And of course, I forgot to talk about Pennsylvania nursing homes in Seattle. By the way, the preparation was much better, and so they won. So let's just come back yeah. to that. Come to strike prep, strike win, right? Organizing. Okay. So that's all I had to say about that compared to the other two that I was writing about. So um, in the United Kingdom, I mean, I think that there are several things that are, there's several things that are different. One is they've always had, just starting with the rail workers, right? I mean, the UK has always had a sort of really militant, the primary rail workers union has long been a very militant um, uh, union that unlike the 12 in the US apparently really understands their power um, and they use it and they've used it a lot. And that's now led to this new repressive kind of anti, not quite anti-strike, but right, the new law that they just passed in the UK. I mean, the UK is, you know, the Tories are sort of racing, you know, with this country for the destruction of everything. So um, I think that there's a, my experience working in the UK, I've worked with a lot of unions, I work with a lot of unions in the UK um, and they have been they have been really heavy participants, uh, a bunch of them, um, in the global online training program that um, I help lead for the last, like since the pandemic. Um, we have had thousands of people from the UK unions coming in in giant groups like the UCU came in with 400, um, literally 400 members uh, two years ago. Um, and that's one of the ones whose balloting is ending today, I think, to strike the university system nationwide over their pension. So there are things that are a little bit different. I mean, you could argue, well, that's a national pension fight. So it leads to a national fight. Look, last I looked, Social Security is a national um, retirement plan in this country. And the fact that seniors, let's give Joe a little little applause here, President Biden. Um, great that the Social Security um, retirees just got one of the biggest increases in forever. By the way, I don't even think that was a demand. I don't even think anyone on the left was demanding it. So it's like, oh, great. Anyway, he just did it because it's like it gets a lot of, you know, okay, we know seniors vote and all those things. But also I think he believes it is the right kind of thing. Um, and it's hard to argue with. But if we were going to have an equivalent program of the national labor movement around, let's say, Social Security, if we treated that like our national pension, um, which it is basically, um, the real demand, honestly, that we should be making, hello, national unions, here's a demand, um, we should be making is to remove the cap on where you're capped at Social Security. That demand should be now, that should be real, that should have been a demand in 2020, 2021, because it is A, winnable, and B, if people understood whenever they talk about that the Social Security system is going to go broke by blah, blah, day, all we got to do is remove the cap. That's currently, I think, in the high 130s. Um, when I'm in active negotiations, I always know what the cap is because we're always, we're always negotiating around it and for it and all sorts of stuff in the, in the pension plans for the workers who still have them um, because there's often parallels to them. So 
that removal of that cap is an example of what should be a national demand. And our national labor movement could make that a demand tomorrow. And the social security system would be funded forever. No problem, no issue. Right. Mm -hmm. So the difference I think is that they have, I mean, obviously it's a smaller country, but I don't think that's why I think that there has been a, um, I think that the crisis of Brexit and a more working class orientated country where class differences have never really been smoldered or smothered the way they are here um, has helped. And I think the leadership of the Rail Workers Union in the UK and the Postal Workers Union over there um, is second to none in terms of mm -hmm. saying, you are, we are not, you are not balancing this crisis on our backs. Um, and in the US, we're just concerned about holding on to the Senate and say, we're going to continue behaving politely and taking our direction from the National Democratic Party as opposed to challenging it. Now, I'm not saying that all the unions over there are exactly challenging their party. I that would be an overstatement. But I do think I wake up in the morning and I read the Financial Times first, like that's my first read in the US because I find it more refreshing than the outrageous cover story of the Wall Street Journal this morning. But anyway, uh, come back to that one too, like saying black voters are, did you see this morning? Anyway, I start with the Financial Times and here's why. They're much more clear about class politics in the Financial Times, right? Like the Wall Street Journal of the world. It's so refreshing. They're just like, yeah, we hate you. We're the ruling class and you're the working class. And we're going to stick it to you. And in this country, they're always trying to dress it up, like mm -hmm. all confused, you know, to keep everyone all confused about who's the working class. Um, we know it's multiracial. It's mostly women. It's all the things that we know it is. So um, I just think the, po the, the, the politics of the working class have always been stronger. There is more class identity. Um, class in and of itself for itself. What, what are those important rules we're supposed to remember from, from Brother Marx? But, um, you know, I think that they have a greater sense of class, just the word class, than we do. Monarchy helps a little bit with that. There's a lot of things that's cemented, I think, in their mind um, that they are in the working class. And, and then they've got some extraordinary leadership that's willing to take risks in a way that our uh, leadership is incapable of, seemingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to uh, come back to the U.S., of course, uh, because I think, you know, to go back to kind of the labor activity that we see sort of building up here, um, I, I think that's something that we hear a lot, you know, on the left and among progressives is that we we really need to sort of shift our priorities to organizing the service sector, uh, because, you know, this, as, as you kind of just alluded to, like, this is where more workers are now, right? Um, now, obviously, I don't think any of us would uh, debate that or, you know, say that we shouldn't be organizing the service sector. Uh, but on the topic of what we've been talking about, uh, you know, I think we've been reminded lately how important industrial labor still is. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've got the rail strike, we've got organizing at Amazon, uh, we've got, uh, you know, in, in honor of Paul Prescott, who couldn't be here, upcoming UPS contract negotiations. So uh, this is kind of a broader question, but just just because there is so much sort of focus on the service sector right now, how how do you think we should think about the service sector in today's economy uh, and, and maybe talk a little bit about the specific challenges that come along with organizing the service sector. Yeah. I mean, and there's, and there's, and there's subsets within the service sector, right? So the burgeoning right. energy right now that we're seeing it sort of the retail side, mm -hmm. that is the service sector, but it's sort of like that new energy is really in the retail side of the service sector. And that, that is a little bit different. Um, yes than we've seen in the past. When I think of the service sector, I think most commonly about the two that I've spent my life in, right, which is education and healthcare, mm -hmm. um, the kind of what I call the mission-driven 
you know, part of the service sector. Um, no one's gone into those fields to get rich, but they would like to be able to do their job well, right? Yes. So that's the defining line of the fight. Um, and make sure that their their concurrent communities um, uh, have access, right, to education and healthcare, right? Both things. So mission-driven on all sides of that part of, part of the service sector. Then there's hotel. You look at the hotel mm -hmm. sort of sector. Um, and, you know, if we had more unions like Unite here, we would be in uh, better shape. Um, having had Unite uh, here 26 Boston strike as the subject of a course we were teaching on Saturday in the Rosa Luxemburg School, it was just re-reminding me of like, we do sectoral bargaining when we have built power. And that union has built power and lined up their contracts. It's Pennsylvania nursing home story too, right? This stuff is not rocket science. You line up your contracts, you build power across an industry, and you basically have sectoral bargaining from the bottom up. So the Pennsylvania settlement spoke to that, and the 2018 extraordinary settlement by Local 26 in Boston also spoke to that. Um, so the people who are sort of like, we can't do sectoral bargaining until we have labor law reform, you know, that's just, mm, right, like mm -hmm. shift to the neck. It makes me crazy. Um, so when I think about the the sectors, I think a few things. One is we have never paid enough attention to one of the most important sectors, which is the building and construction trades. Like if you mm -hmm. were making a to-do list, right? Like major strategic sector. Um, yes. And I think for a lot of reasons is not even usually in the discussion um, right. that we're in. Um, so that's, that's one super strategic sector that could bring a lot of power, but just because the sector is strategic and the workers inside of it are considered more strategic. And when I say strategic, it just means they can cause hella disruption, right? You shut down the right. construction trades, you cause massive disruption. Obviously you shut down the rail lines, you know, and the ports, uh, and you are talking about major power. Um, so I have lived in and mostly written about um, sort of life and organizing among women and women of color in the service sector because it's just where I cut my teeth. Um, and so therefore I can speak the most to it. I think, so I think one, organizing, we should be organizing any place there's heat. That's just period. Yes. Um, yes. The question though is what are we doing with it? And, and how can workers, and then there's sort of logistics, right? We could break all these subcategories down. Um, they all matter. Every sector matters. Some sectors matter more than others in terms of strategic power. Um, and what happens when you pull the strike lever? That's, that's how I gauge strategic and how I write about it in you know, shortcuts and everywhere. It's like, what happens when you shut it down? Um, and so it's not to diminish you know, alternative power, but I think we can see already um, I'm stating something that I think is obvious, but often not stated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a real difference between a coffee shop with 20 or 30 people in it shutting down um, and an Amazon warehouse um, or the rail lines um, yeah. or an entire education system of 900 schools in Los Angeles or, um, you know, a hospital uh, system being forced to pay for replacement workers um, at top dollar um, in a massive open-ended strike. I mean, we can, we can just start to calibrate the different levels of power. It doesn't mean we're valuing one group of workers over another as human beings or as individuals. We're talking right. power and strategy here, right? Um, and what's required for all of them is, you know, I think, I think at this point we can, I'm almost 
writing off that the national unions will actually figure this out with without with the exception of the few who have long figured it out right um and we hope that that's going to be the teamsters they've shown us in the past they could certainly do it we know unite here can do it um that's a really short list am i at the end of my list i might be but anyway so what i what i am seeing and what i'm hearing and what needs to happen um is that there needs to be a strategic bottom up movement right now that's going to start to look more like Pennsylvania, Minnesota, but a little bit better prepped. Um, we need as much strike readiness as humanly possible, mm -hmm. um, as fast as we can get there. And I'm talking, that's the answer to my, like, it's 2025 in January. Where are you? What have you done to prepare for this moment? Don't wait to then to ask the question. Ask it now, because mm -hmm. we still have time to figure out there's a bunch of different labor markets. I'm starting to try and map them. So, so are other people where there's tons of contracts that are lined up strategically um, that may allow service workers even to create the kind of crisis that our railway workers should be creating mm -hmm. in defense of the whole of the working class. Um, I think it's going to take nothing short of that because I think as someone who experienced um, the hopeful moments of 1996 to about 2000, um, when John Sweeney took over the AFL-CIO and, you know, young, a much younger me, excited like many others, imagined that we could actually affect real change um, from the top. And it was, you know, as I've written about, obviously uh, not going to work. And so um, I don't think we should be thinking it's going to work right now. And I think a lot of us, I mean, the reason that I run a endless series of online training programs that literally... I'm, I'm losing track, uh, but at least 30,000 rank and file workers have gone through in two years. Um, and it's shown real product in a few places already uh, is for just that reason, which is mm -hmm. um, it's got to come from the base. Um, there are a lot of locals that are in the position to strike, that have been striking, that can strike um, and that must strike. And the question is, how do we go from, how do we go from a bunch of random good locals doing really good work and pulling off really good strikes um, to a self-conscious left inside the labor movement that's actually acting as one and adding up to more than a bunch of good random locals doing really good work across a bunch of different sectors in the service sector and beyond. Um, and I think that's the imperative right now is how do we stitch together? Uh, there's a lot of good progressive smart people who can run strikes in our movement. They're all at the local level. They're all being constrained at the national level. Uh, mostly, I should say, being constrained at the national level, how how do we shift to manifesting what's happening in the United Kingdom from a bottom-up strategy of coordination across sectors and across labor markets? That's what has to happen right now. Well, on the subject of looking forward and planning for the future, um, I, of course, want to wrap up by just asking you to say a little bit more about the books that you have in the works. Uh, we already teased the title of your forthcoming book, which will be out early next year. Um, but but you mentioned that you're also working on the fifth. So maybe maybe uh, give us a little preview just to close out. <laughs> sure. Um, so let me just start by saying um, that uh, that the the book that's coming out in early 2023 is my first co-authored book. So I want to also just put out the name of my co-author, Abby Lawler. Um, she began as a graduate student researcher with me um, at UC Berkeley. 
Uh, and as of today, actually just passed her bar, I believe, and is now a lawyer. Um, so, and she had worked at Unite here. I mean, I just got, you know, I went out looking for like a perfect graduate student. That's one of the many beautiful things about working at, connected to UC Berkeley. Um, found her, got her, uh, and it, it's just been the easiest collaboration um, I could imagine in terms of churning out a book together, what was a report. Um, and then I went back to Oxford and said, hey, people are a little annoyed that this isn't a book. Can we, you know, they basically said, yeah, you got to add a lot more. So um, we've added a lot. So there's several, basically half, half, half as much um, coming out in the book as there was in what preceded it, which was the Turning the Tables report um, at Berkeley. Um, and, you know, I go considerably deeper in some of the chapters on the mechanics, because what a lot of people said is it's great to read the case studies. It's great to have the sort of philosophical goal. Um, we don't really understand all the steps. And you kind of went a little bit fast through that in one, you know, in the Einstein case study. Um, so there's a very lengthy chapter coming out that's like a step-by-step -step of how does how do a group of workers transform their union from closed and top down to um, open and bottom up? Um, and there's some focus on Europe uh, and more engagement with the debate about sectoral bargaining, as I was just talking about, um, because we brought the German uh, hostel worker, the Berlin hostel worker strike um, into it and have a huge case study to show how you can also expand and do this under sectoral bargaining um, in Germany, you know, in the country that people look to as having the strongest labor laws where they're getting stepped on left, right, and center too. So, you know, when 30,000 workers struck um, a year ago, um, this time there was a 30,000, it was the biggest hospital strike in German history. Um, and I had been working very closely for two and a half years um, with those workers, um, had flown right, as soon as we got the vaccines, had flown right back into Germany for the, what's called the strike delegate conference two summers ago, um, right? So in the lead up to the strike, um, worked really closely with um, the workers um, across the two big systems and 11 hospitals that struck Berlin for 31 days. Um, across, by the way, nurses, hear this again, labor movement, nurses, non-nurses and contracted out workers. I mean, there were so many radical components to that strike um, that were really unprecedented in Germany, both how many workers participated um, actively in the negotiations process and that they had never ever brought um, the workers in an industrial approach together um, on, on lineup. So that was several years of work to get ready for that strike. So that comes out um, in the new book. And then the Book five, um, you know, is finally going to be the book I've been really wanting to write uh, ever since I realized I could write, even though like I'd rather be on strike, um, uh, which is going to be a book on power, um, period. Um, on It picks up on where the two big, there's two diagrams that I feel like took a lot out of me to figure out how to make, literally, and there's a bunch of academics, if they hear this will laugh at me because I needed so much help to do to learn to, to learn to make what was called a two-by-two two chart um, in academia. But anyway, I finally did. And those charts and their shortcuts are the chart called Power Required and then Power Available. Um, and essentially, book five leaps, leaps off from those two charts. Obviously, the gap between the two is essential, right? And that's what organizing is versus mobilizing versus advocacy versus blah, blah, mobilizing, you know, which is not going to get us to the Holy Grail. So, um, but really articulating, how do you measure? 
how can you measure how much power is required to win on a certain demand? And then how can you measure the relative power of your own forces and your opposition's forces so you get more clear about what I call strategy, which is how do you get what, how do you close that gap? Um, that is book five, and that is just beginning, and I am um, super um, excited about it. The research is beginning for it um, with a clear eye towards what the book is going to look like. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, to be continued then, uh, Jane McAlevey, again, a labor organizer, one of our favorite labor commentators. Jane, great to see you as always. Thanks so much. Jen. Great to see you as always. Always good to be with Jacobin. And um, I hope you and everyone watching has a great day or evening or whatever it is for you. Thanks for having me. Join the Versa Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Versa publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Versa Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in October and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past by Robert Bevan, a look at how statues, heritage, and the built environment have become the battleground for the culture wars. Is Mother Dead, the new novel by Norwegian writer Vigdis Jorth, which follows the cat-and-mouse game of surveillance and psychological torment between a middle-aged artist and her aging mother. Radius, a story of feminist revolution by Yasmin el a haunting, intimate account of the women and men who built a feminist revolution in the middle of the Arab Spring. And Power and Resistance, Foucault, Deleuze, Derrida, Althusser, by Yoshiyuku Sato, a provocative reinterpretation of the post-structuralist theory of power. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Zoned Out is a podcast that examines the capitalist city and attempts to imagine how the socialist city could replace it. Hosted by Rin, urban planner and person who has a last name but really values privacy, she does deep dives into various facets of urban geography, planning, and economics in this monthly podcast. You can listen to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more at zonedoutpodcast.neocities.org. All right. Well, I am here, of course, with none other than Paul Prescott and Ariella Thornhill. Obviously, the last Jacobin show had to get the gang all back together. Guys, how are you? Bittersweet, you know, glad to be here, but sad it's the end for now. But yeah, I I don't think we've all been on screen together for like over a year. So I'm just really excited to see you both. Uh, Obviously, I talked to you both outside the show, but welcome back. It's good to be back. We'll just be doing this offline. This isn't going to stop in our lives. Yeah, yeah. people won't be able to see it. (laughs) This will be our joint OnlyFans project. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So please sign up. No. All right, so I thought for our last show, we could maybe uh, talk a little bit about some of the themes that have come up throughout the duration of the show and kind of like try to tie it all up together and um, also talk about how we can actually build a healthy and functioning left because I think a big focus of the show kind of from day one has been to look at, uh, you know, what's 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 going wrong, right? And And maybe try to think about like, how we can do things better and and how things can go right. So to kick off, I want to I want to ask you too about uh, this idea of a new working class. And uh, what I mean is, I think you guys have probably seen this. I think it's become pretty popular among progressives to point out that the working class is more than just white men in hard hats, right? Like I hear this line a lot. Um, I'll throw a couple of examples on screen. The most recent piece I saw to this effect was in the Baffler magazine, and the title of the piece was redefining the working class 
Beyond White Men in Hard Hats. So we've been hearing this line over and over again, and I want to talk about it because I think on the one hand, it's like, okay, sure, like, we would all agree the, the working class consists of more than just white men in hard hats. Uh, it is very diverse. Uh, women, of course, are 50%, if not more, of the working class. And uh, I think, you know, if there if people were actually acting like the working class was just white men, or if people were actually crafting policies that only somehow benefited white men in hard hats, we would oppose that, right? But I, I, I have a few bones to pick with this kind of uh, line that we need to go beyond hard hats. Um, but first, just to give another example of what I mean, uh, here is Tamara Drought. She is the author of the book Sleeping Giant, which I think is kind of the quintessential example of, you know, we have a new working class. Uh, so let's watch this video where she explains what the new working class looks like. Who is the new American working class? So this new American working class, um, unlike, you know, the old working class that you mentioned, people like my dad, hard hat, works in a factory, takes a lunch pail. The new working class is largely employed in service or caring jobs. So they're home health aides, they're janitors, they're um, retail workers, they're fast food workers. It's a new working class focused on serving and caring. And then there's also been a demographic shift, which I think is really important to understanding some of the invisibility that has yeah. happened. Um, today's working class is much more female and it's much more racially diverse. And that is especially true if you look at the youngest members of the new working class. Those 25 to 34, nearly half of this working class are people of color. All right. So the new working class, uh, I, of course, want to get your guys' thoughts on the emergence of this so-called new working class. Uh, but first, I, I, I just want to say that, you know, one reason why I'm not really crazy about this sort of formulation of the new working class is I think... Obviously, it is true that manufacturing jobs have been disappearing and the service sector and, you know, care work uh, are, are sectors that are expanding. But I think when we talk about the new working class, sometimes it can sort of sidestep the question of how we got here in the first place, right? Uh, I think a lot of people who talk about the disappearance of manufacturing jobs sort of treat industrialization um, at, at best as something that has already happened that we can't ever reverse and that we just need to move on from manufacturing and kind of look to these new economies. Uh, and at worst, I feel like people treat deindustrialization as like, a, a, again, a natural or sort of magical process that just kind of happened over time because of changes in technology or in the economy. And um, I don't think that that's the correct way to understand deindustrialization. Uh, deindustrialization was the result of a set of policy choices, uh, you know, put forward by the bipartisan neoliberal political class that basically amounted to a full-scale assault on the working class, on working class people of all races. Uh, and so so I just want to start there, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys. Um, Paul, maybe you want to maybe you want to talk a little bit about the new working class? Yeah, uh, maybe I'll start on the, the demographic point, because one thing that's kind of interesting, you hear on the one hand, one line pushed by people who maybe they self-identify as woke. Let me, let's just say that who will be like, you know, workers of color, women, they've all, always been the backbone of work in this country. They've all, you know, they're the people who've been doing the work in the society, which is actually, I mean, largely true. But that doesn't really fit with then the other line that like the new working class is actually more diverse. It's sort of like, well, I mean, these workers have actually are always been there. Uh, you know, maybe more of them are unionized now than before. With, and even that has its problems. You know, we've talked about how many blue collar black workers were in industrial unions before. 
but it's kind of like these two points don't really go together and they're trying to make them fit. Um, So it's like, how new is it really? I mean, we've had nurses in this country for a long time, but for a long time, they weren't in unions. We've had teachers, you know, a lot of these kind of service jobs. I mean, you can find labor leaders as early as the 1950s talking about how increasingly, increasingly we have service sector jobs and all these things. So Sure. I mean, things are going to look different now than they did in 1940s or 1950s. You know, yes, the economy is different. Um, But also, I mean, with reindustrialization, um, they kind of missed that angle as well. We actually have some reindustrialization happening, but not on the left's terms. You actually see in the South manufacturing coming back, but in a bad way with very low wages, with no unions, um, much more automation so um, it is kind of happening, but just not on the terms that we would like it to happen. Yeah, I think before people are allowed to talk about the new working class, they should be required to read Detroit, I Do Mind Dying. Just just that one should give you enough background to see that what they're doing, like Paul pointed out, is trying to square the circle of the cognitive dissonance of adopting a kind of right wing perspective on labor hook, line, and sinker. It's just white men in hard hats. It only benefits them. It's exclusionary. It's um, almost segregationist. And then trying to square that with reclaiming this kind of working class identity for people of color, for women in America, the reality is just, just as you and Paula pointed out, this has always been the case. The working class has always been across, you know, race, gender, every sector, because it is a working class movement. Labor history in America is about united movements of people working together because they share a common interest because of their class position. And that key bit seems to be responsible for the cognitive dissonance with all of these people is that they can't see the unified goals of that class because they fundamentally can't view the working class in American history. Oh, can I say one more thing too is, you know, the the statistic I always love to trot out is about, you know, today statistically black workers are the most likely to be in unions and second is Hispanic workers. And I'm sure some people might hear that and try to say, well, look, that proves that, you know, this is the new working class. But I think you will find if you look at the data those unionized workers are actually more in the uh, in sectors that have been union for a long time, whether it's public sector or manufacturing jobs that still exist in some of the older industrial unions. So, you know, I, I don't want people to get away with that trick of trying to say, well, look, that statistic shows that we have a new working class. Well, that those are the kind of older industries where you'll find that data in. Data in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I just want to like wrap up by saying, you know, obviously, on one hand, it sounds sort of progressive or Paul, you use the word woke to be like, we have to go beyond white men in hard hats. Right. But I, I want to point out, because I think that we're seeing a lot more of this now, neoliberal Democrats have basically uh, like successfully latched themselves onto this line of we need to go beyond white men in hard hats to uh, push policies that undermine infrastructure and what little manufacturing we have left. That was 
would benefit the entire working class, regardless of race, uh, in order to like trumpet the, you know, triumphs of free trade or whatever. So I remember, you know, when Biden uh, uh, and the Democrats were kind of trying to fashion the infrastructure bill, um, I remember reading a quote in the Washington Post uh, that read, some people close to the White House said they feel that the emphasis on major physical infrastructure investments reflects a dated nostalgia for a kind of white working class male worker. Uh, Paul, your favorite person, Joanne Reed from MSNBC, of course, uh, last year called the infrastructure bill a white guy employment program. And uh, we recently had another stunning example from The Economist, Matt Stoller. He unearthed an even crazier example of a think tank head uh, basically saying that industrialization is racial justice. So let's take a look. I'm sure I'm going to piss off both left and right, so I apologize. Um, that the fetish for manufacturing is part of the general fetish for keeping white males of low education um, outside the cities in the powerful positions they're in in the U.S. And um, that is really what's going on here. Because when you look at the costs of manufacturing, and Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot, not of manufacturing, of trade. And job displacement and community, Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot of work on this, and I'm sure she'll have a different view than I do. But when I look at the so-called costs of the China shock or the costs of the decline in manufacturing, I always think compared to what? For decades, there was enormous displacement of African Americans in this economy. Every time there was a recession, African American unemployment rates shot up much faster and higher than white unemployment rates. Single women were methodically excluded from the workforce, and especially if they became parents, or ghettoed in particular sets of jobs throughout the economy well through the 70s into the 80s. Um, displacements on large scales would happen when technology or trade broke through, like all the secretaries who got replaced by personal computers and other forms of office animation. Uh, excuse me, not animation, automation, excuse me. Um, and these kinds of churn, as the economists put it, never were decried. They never got political attention. They never got much notice. But when it started being the white male manufacturing people in the so-called heartland, which by definition was not urban, um, then suddenly this was a crisis. All right. Uh, of course, have to hand it over to Paul again, who I know agrees 100% with the... <laughs> with Adam. Yeah, yeah. He, he was right that he was going to piss us off. He, right. he got that part right. <laughs> well, where do you even start with this? I would suggest he read... Oh, really all our listeners, but a great book called All Labor Has Dignity, which is a collection of speeches Martin Luther King Jr. made with various unions um, throughout his life, late 50s, early 60s. And one thing that's pretty striking is he's already talking about automation and displacement and how particularly bad this was going to be for black workers. Um, so there were, I mean, people in the civil rights movement already raising this as an issue um, well before um, how it was going to affect all workers, especially workers of color. Um, also, I mean, I, I wasn't conscious during this era, but during the era of NAFTA, I mean, there was a lot of pushback. I mean, labor was not happy about that. They were lobbying against that. Um, you know, so um, I don't know. The argument just doesn't square that labor was definitely always concerned about this kind of displacement. Um, you know, and it's just hard for me also to think, I forget the term he used about these workers in positions of power, 
you know, to think about, um, you know, when we had the Kellogg strike uh, last year or two years ago, you know, one of the plants was in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And I went out there and talking to the workers um, about their schedules, how they're working 60, 80 hours a week, things like that. It's just hard for me to think of them as these these great positions of power that they're in right now. Um, so this, this is a lot you could say about that that quote. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it feels like um, the the same old canard, you know, using race, using um, these kind of one-dimensional forms of social justice speak to try to divide. Not that the infrastructure bill was, you know, a, a boon for the left and was right. great, but anytime something goes too far, you'll hear this pushback. You'll hear it from both sides. One side saying, well, this is going to leave a bunch of aggrieved white men who have been left out. And the other side saying, well, this is going to leave a bunch of aggrieved people of color and women who have been left out over and over and over and over to distract from the real issue at hand. And it's um, it's really deeply cynical. And I think we're going to see it more. The, the more gains can be made for regular working class people, the more we're going to hear. But what about X? What about Y? This is going to be, you know, this is only getting attention because it's focusing on white men. It's just for white men. The working class is just white men. So you can't do anything for the working class. This isn't going far enough for people of color. The working class is more people of color. So you have to target anything you do towards people of color. It's... um it's absurd and it's sad the regularity with which it's trotted out by people like that. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that we should shift gears slightly uh, or use this as a segue to the other thing I wanted to talk about with you guys, which is how we build a you know healthy, fighting, actually functioning left. Obviously a very big question, which we're not going to solve in the next five minutes. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think that it's a good way to wind down the show. And I, you know, I want to say for my part, I think when I'm sort of trying to think through this question of like, how do we build a healthy and functioning left? There are sort of two components that I think we have to focus on. I mean, there are probably more, but the two big ones that come to mind are number one, how do we build a healthy left intellectual culture? And that's kind of been the focus of, uh, you know, this, this show, obviously we're on YouTube. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're trying to engage with ideas of some sort. Um, and then the other component obviously is how do we build a healthy organizing culture? And I think that the two are, of course, feed into each other and are deeply related. Um, but just to start with the question of building like a healthy left intellectual culture, for me, uh, there's a lot that we could say, but for me, it really comes down to two things. Uh, number one, I think that we have to foster a kind of majoritarian spirit and culture. And by that, I mean, you know, we, we, we need to unite around a broad actually very simple program of universal economic demands to go back to what you were alluding to, Ariella. Uh, we need Medicare for all, jobs for all, college for all. Uh, you know, bread and butter issues. Um, I think related to that is we have to stop fetishizing the idea of marginality and we have to reject vanguardism and what the what uh, Mark Rudd, who's a former, you know, weather underground member calls the politics of transgression. So that's, you know, like doing stuff like burning American flags. I don't think that people on the left are really doing this as much anymore. But, you know, I think They're that what? Yeah, exactly. American right, exactly. What with inflation? Like those flags don't come cheap. <laughs> um, but you know, this is just this is just to say that like I think that 
I honestly feel like I honestly feel like we you know, have to move away from kind of trying to take extreme or like the most radical position in the room. Like, I think that, you know, things like things that sometimes bubble up on the left, like the idea of abolishing the family or whatever are like total non-starters for me. So I'll say, I'll say that, you know, about the first point, this kind of spirit of majoritarianism that I think we have to cultivate. And then the other thing, and I'm very curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this, I think that we have to be anti-triumphalist. And, you know, what I mean is I I think that the left, uh, I understand this. I think that people on the left really want to claim victories wherever they can. And I think sometimes that can be good. But I was just noticing, you know, in 2019, there were a lot of kind of uh, remembrances of the 1999 battle in Seattle, the protests against the World Trade Organization. And a lot of the kind of uh, like retrospectives that I was reading were like, we won. <laughs> like people were like, the battle in Seattle was great. Like this was, you know, this was like the an, an expression of like the anti-globalist left at its best. And it's like, have you seen trade deals since 1999? I, I just don't think that you know, we should claim that as a victory. I don't think it does us any good to be like, oh, we won or like, you know, like we're doing amazing, sweetie, you know? And again, we saw this in 2020, which was the 10 year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. And like, you know, there, I, as someone who was interested in and involved in Occupy Wall Street, like I do have some, you know, I do have sort of a soft spot for Occupy Wall Street, but I think it's really important to be clear eyed about what it did not achieve. Um, so I'll just say that in when it comes to, you know, this trying to push back on some of the, the triumphalism. Uh, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think, because I know that some people have a kind of different take where they're like, well, we need to celebrate our wins where we where we have them. We don't want people to get demoralized. So anyway, maybe Ariella, um, uh, ha- ha- I know you have all the answers. A resident we- demoralizer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll ask our resident demoralizer, uh, how do we build a better left? So I think you're right. I think there's a few dynamics going on to unpack. And without getting too abstract, I think that we have a crisis of um, sort of social life and public space. And for a lot of people, the left becomes more than an organizing space. Let's say there's like a, a kind of overarching parasocial element to it that means a lot more than just what the strategy is. So I think we need to like recognize that internally. Um, I think that we are living in a society where people are deeply alienated. And for a long time, nobody was talking about the real issues that people face. It was always, well, it's your own fault. And, And the left has adopted some of those tendencies. But it means that the spaces in which we're organizing take on a lot of that social meaning and value. And there's so much pressure and it can raise the stakes. And you see this over and over and over again when you have people infighting and fighting on social media. And that's not just the left. People go where they feel like politics happens. And the heart of politics is, you know, the kind of democratic arguments and alliances that we get into when we speak to each other. So It's taking on a lot. And I think that that's why we have to do exactly what your first point was. We have to zoom out. We have to say, what is our strategy? How do we get there? And then, you know, parse the way that we are relating in terms of that strategy. 
because it's great to have social relationships and friendships and all kinds of things with people you're organizing with. But at the end of the day, you have to like have a real strategic vision. And I think that's something that gets lost in the weeds um, and can get lost in a lot of the sort of interpersonal dynamics or um, sectarianism Mm -hmm. that the left is rife with. And it's rife with that because we need social connection as human beings. And most of it is coming from these very narrow spaces in our lives that end up taking on a, a ton of that burden. But I think if we think strategically and focus on, you know, a universal broad program that everybody can relate to and think about the strategy to get that program, it will eliminate some of the gatekeeping, some of the squabbling. I also think that um, the triumphalism you talked about seems a symptom of also despair, you know, people being like the left didn't achieve anything. Nothing has ever happened. It's a kind of um, pessimism that expresses itself in, you know, various shades of left politics, be it feminism or, you know, racial justice. You see this idea that there has always been and will always be this oppressive yoke around your neck and you can never escape it and you can read it into all of human history for all time. That is also a bad tendency, but they're the same tendency. Yeah, it's it's a difficulty reckoning with powerlessness and what it takes to get power. And we need to be better at it. Like we need to be honest. So, you know, we, uh, Jen and I interviewed Noam Chomsky and we were talking about protests against the Iraq war. And he was like, they did do something. They did do something. They made it slightly less brutal. That's something when he said that, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) me too. And, you know, I think about this in my own life, people that I've met older leftists who have literally been fighting for me, for my, for my life, for my children's lives, for my neighbor's lives before I was born to make it better. And, you know, that's something that um, Adolf pointed out in his interview. You would expect him to be (laughs) a cynical pessimist, but he's not, you know, he, he wants to take a long look and give an honest appraisal. And I think that the answer maybe to triumphalism isn't, um, and not that you suggested this, Jen, but it isn't, you know, complete and utter pessimism. It's walking the line Mm -hmm. and figuring out where the foundation for the future steps lies in our history. Labor Paul? Um, I'll start on the question of the intellectual culture Um, I think one thing we always have to keep in mind is our audience and who do we want our audience to be? And I think that should always be as broad as possible. And I think in different specific situations, that's going to change. But I think one thing Jacobin has largely done very well, you know, especially in the in the articles, is that I think it really does appeal to a broad audience. And often I can, you know, I can send articles to like my mom or friends who are not as obsessed about politics who might not really identify as leftists. And I think they can read it and understand it. And it could still also challenge their thinking to a degree, but that really has to be our audience is people who are not yet won over, um, who, who we think there is potential, you know, a, a while ago, a friend and mentor of mine, I'm not going to mention names or specifics, but in an organizational setting, he would always say like, we got to be speaking to our right, to the people mm-hmm. to our right. And everyone would always freak out. Like, what do you mean? But it's like, clearly, you know, the average person who is not where we are or ha- has not been convinced or hasn't been exposed to these arguments, like this is our audience. And that really should be always 
what we're thinking. And with that comes thoughts about, you know, what kind of language are we using? How are we framing things? How are these things going to be um, interpreted by others who are listening? Um, and again, I think broadly, you know, Jackman's done a pretty good job at doing that. And that's something we always have to keep in mind. Um, and yeah, the, the triumphalism is um, a big issue. And I brought this up a few times in relation to labor. You know, I yeah. think one thing I worry about with these, this recent labor activity, which is genuinely very exciting and we should be excited, but I think there's been a tendency to get very carried away with it and say, this is like the new wave of the total rebirth of the labor movement. And I brought this up, I think on a previous show, you know, someone had a very sobering statistic that if you add up all the Starbucks that have been unionized, um, all those workers still are not as many as, you know, one Amazon facility in New York, right. you know, right. and that kind of just makes you stop and think like, okay, like this is very exciting. And I've been participating, you know, in Starbucks things locally, um, but we just can't get carried away. We can't assume that this is going to be the next big thing. It, it usually just doesn't work like that. And, you know, I think this is, it might sound like we're being downers, but really this, I think, sets us up for a much more healthy way to look at these things, you know. Um, think about when Jane McAlevey speaks so much about structure tests and labor organizing. You know, if you if you don't have a realistic assessment of what you're up against and where you're at, you're going to fail. And really, ultimately, that failure, when you don't see it coming, will lead to bigger demoralization in the long run. Right, you know, right. um, and I'm going to use a, a, a dumb sports analogy. I, you know, this is my last chance to get these out, but it's like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, let them let loose. <laughs> I think the way we should look at this is, you know, I, I haven't played basketball in a long time. I used to play a lot. So let's say, you know, I want to get back into this. If I go into my first game thinking like I'm going to score 45 points, you know, I'm going to get 15 rebounds. That's obviously not going to happen. All right. And then I'm just setting myself up for disappointment. But if I go in there knowing situation and saying, you know, I'm going to get, a, you know, a few points, I'm going to help out, I'm going to try not to like faint because I haven't exercised that much. And that just sets you up um, to have a, a, a good idea of what you're, what you're trying to achieve. And I think will help sustain people in the long run, as opposed to thinking, well, the general strike was supposed to happen. Why didn't it happen? Right. Now I'm sad. You know, it, I think it, it's, that's not a healthy culture to, to deal with. Yeah. Um, Paul, I, I also have to ask you about like how, like, where you see the most promise for building a healthy organizing culture. And obviously the reason I'm asking you is because I think as everybody watching knows, you are a longtime member of Philly DSA. Uh, you also uh, ran a campaign. You ran for office. Uh, so so what can, what can you say about like, just from your experience, what seems to work best and what kind of doesn't seem to work? Uh, and, and I think this is really interesting, not just because you ran for office, uh, but you... This is the last show, so let's put it all out here. Correct it, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were part of the leadership of Philly DSA uh, at a time when uh, I feel like there was kind of some controversy, right? Like the class reductionists uh, rule Philly DSA with an iron fist. Uh, you know, yeah. what, do you have, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> um, well, first, like just broadly, you know, healthy areas, are, I think that's how you framed it. You know, um, places to organize uh, shocker, you know, I'm going to start with labor and, you know, part of why I'm saying this is, you know, because it, it, it forces you, this is not a self-selecting area of organizing. You're not organizing with people who have already identified as a socialist or blah, blah, blah. You're, you're organizing people based on their position and it forces you 
to do things like finding the common ground, you know, to, to be able to move forward. So I think that's a healthy environment to start with where you're forced by those constraints to, to make broad appeals and to build relationships across differences and, and things like that. So I think that's always going to be fertile ground. And that is what is so exciting about these recent labor um, actions. And I think the fact that you're seeing more and more that DSAers are, you know, involved in this to some degree. And I think this is where you, they can learn really great organizing skills that, you know, one would hope they can bring back into DSA um, to create a healthier environment. Um, I just think anything that forces you to, to make a broad appeal yeah. and to organize across difference. And the other thing I've mentioned a lot before is like state level ballot initiatives, um, which really force you to answer a yes or no, like, should we tax the rich or not? And, you know, your audience is the entire state, basically. And, you know, you've, you've seen some interesting results, like in Arizona, where, where they passed one to tax the rich, the fund public education, you know, some of those people voting yes, were also voted for Donald Trump. We know in Florida, some of those mm-hmm. people voting for a $15 minimum wage um, also voted for Donald Trump. And so that ballot initiative is is setting up an environment where you can talk to these people who you might not ever have been talking to before and might not have a reason to on the basis of a shared platform. So I think that general organizing culture is, is what we should be striving for. Um, and for, I mean, Philly DSA specifically, um, maybe I should write a book about that. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for that. <laughs> you know, I'm obviously I'm partisan in this one, but I think we, despite kind of the, um, the controversy that was really kind of overblown um, as opposed to what was really going on internally. And I think uh, someone from the outside would get an impression that was very different than an average member. Um, but I think we, we did have this pretty healthy organizing culture um, because we put ourselves in a position to be building ties with different kinds of people who don't normally intersect with the left. I mean, probably the biggest, biggest example was labor. You know, um, again, a lot of times people who did not identify as socialists, whatever, but they knew whatever DSA thinks, like they're with me on this issue, they're supporting us, I'm going to work with them. And in doing so, you know, we've been able to bring labor along to some degree on Medicare for all, you know, um, been a resource to kind of expose people and organizations to certain ideas they might not have been exposed to before. And so I think that was, has been our, our biggest strengths um, in many ways. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I, Ariella, as our, <laughs> our resident demoralizer, uh, I know, I know you, you uh, uh, have just been sitting on this information of how we build a healthy and fighting left this whole mm-hmm. time and have not felt like you, you know, wanted to share it with anybody uh, because you've just enjoyed watching the chaos yeah. of the left <laughs> for the last several <laughs> decades unfold. Uh, but for our last Jacobin show, uh, any parting, any parting thoughts on, you know, how, how we build a better left? I think a lot of it goes back to what you and Paul have said. You know, we when we organize around bread and butter issues, we meet the people impacted by those issues and we learn to speak with them in a way that there is, you know, a shared language and a shared goal. And I think we need more of that. We need to break out of whatever silos, ideologically or otherwise, and say what is important to us and meet the other people it's important to. Because this is one of the themes of the show that we've stressed. Voters are complicated. Yeah. People have complicated politics. It's not just red or blue or whatever, pink. You know, it's um, 
it's deeply, deeply varied. We talked about this in our interview with um, Jen Silva. And when you start looking at the people who are on the ground or meeting the people who care about these kind of bread and butter issues, you see that the coalition is much more complicated than, you know, the mainstream media makes it out to be. So where I live, there's a campaign to um, limit Airbnbs so that housing is more affordable, so that the housing market is a little bit more stable and it doesn't jack up rent prices. That's a coalition of many, many, many different types of people across the board. And when you create something where there's no gatekeeping, it's just like entry by interest, you start to realize where the work is, like who who needs to be doing the work. And it's the people who care. It's the people who are out there. It might not be the people in your reading group. And maybe they need to spread out and like meet some of the people who are involved. I think um, we can we can get into a kind of ideological rut. And just as Paul said, when you start to do the work on the ground, you have to break out of it. You have to actually see who the audience is and meet them. And they're probably not going to agree with every single thing you think or want, but they'll agree on one thing. And that's where the starting point is. Can I, I'll add some things to that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, one, just because it got me thinking, you mentioned, you know, elections. And I think, you know, as as terms of an arena of struggle, you know, I I think we need to go into elections with very open eyes and be very clear about what they are and what they aren't. And I think we have to just know they have their their limits. I mean, in some ways, they can be really good for forming new connections and relationships. They can be good for people learning how to talk to voters, like Ariella said, and you, you just learn. Most people have very incoherent po- politics. You start to learn, how can I frame my issues, you know, the best way? So that that's what it's good for, but it's still very much a mobilization project and not really an organizing project. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we should be clear that we're not going to just elect our way out of our current situation. Although, of course, you know, that's going to be part of it. Um and, and I also think it would be um, a danger for groups like DSA or just the left generally to think about it in terms of like, well, look, every single year there's an election for something. Let's just like every single election do mm-hmm. something, always, Russian, be, you know, always yeah. be preparing for the next election. I, I don't think we're going to get probably won't win many elections like that, first of all. And I don't think that's really going to build the power we need. So I think we, we should be clear about what electoral organizing can do and can't do for us. Um and just as a general point about, you know, what the left should be doing uh, for for a better left, um, I really think we we got to have a medium and long-term perspective on all of this. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I remember after Bernie dropped out in 2020, and people might think I'm crazy for this, but overall, I, I had a fairly optimistic view of things still because we always knew this was like the Hail Mary Long shot. I'm going to use the sports analogy. This is like third string quarterback (laughs) has an incredible season, gets to the Super Bowl and loses. You know, you should look at that not as really a disappointment. I mean, we we kind of punched above our weight. And really Mm -hmm. what it kind of exposed was, okay, we are really on to something as a left. Like this program was very popular. You know, there was a very broad, diverse coalition built around it. These ideas are popular, but we don't have the base yet. We aren't really embedded enough. To, to make this real. And now the task is 
at in our various local levels. And by that, I don't mean hyper local, but I mean, you know, at the state level um, and, and the federal level, we need to start waging campaigns around these issues. We need to start winning to build confidence. So that part is the like 20 to 40 year part. Um, and but that election, I think, just exposed that we actually are on to something. It kind of clarified our tasks, but it, it just won't happen overnight. Um, you know, and this is my constant like just badgering about this the the call for a general strike out of nowhere. You know, it, it don't it's just be a like, wet blanket on the I know, general I'm sorry. strike. Um, <laughs> yeah, classic labor you, Paul. I actually bet you, like in two years, it is going to happen like that, and I'll yeah. be like. All right, I'm wrong. <laughs> I really, I really hope I'm With wrong. With people holding signs, you were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. again, it's like this instinct to go back to like, let me score 60 points in my mm-hmm. first game after five years instead of being like, hey, maybe I could score like 12 points, get a few yeah. rebounds. That's pretty good. You know, I, I just don't understand this instinct to want to just like jump to the mm-hmm. absolute top, given where we are. And maybe it's just a lack of understanding of like how profound the defeat of the left has been over the last few decades. And I know it's very depressing to think about that, but we don't really need to dwell on it, but we just need to kind of understand where we're at. Yeah. I think it goes back to what you said about triumphalism, Jen, because what you get is um, a a sincere, but dishonest appraisal of what and how we won. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like there are real big wins. I'm glad that there's no child labor. You know, I'm glad <laughs> for a one. weekend. <laughs> yeah. Over time is yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we don't have a clear, you know, and part of this is not the fault of the left. It's because we get presented with a constantly reframed narrative mm-hmm. about labor history in America. And we need to return to what made it work. What were the sort of structural elements that created leverage? What was the organizing based around? It's like you were talking about with the idea that, you know, the working class is just white men in hard hats. So we have nothing to learn, right? Because because they were white men in hard hats, they were like, you know, we don't want to work 80 hour weeks. And then everyone said, yay, we love white men in hard hats. We'll, we'll accede to your demand. You know, it's, it's that kind of like foolish double thing that's constantly happening. We need to have an honest view of why we won, why we lost, where we want to go. It's not going to happen overnight, like Paul said. And it's going to be a long road, but we're on it. We're on it together. We're on it with people we don't even know. So uh, in other words, uh, we're all on board for Bernie 2052. (laughs) I got to tell you before we end, a really cute story I heard about Bernie. So someone I know- love a Bernie story. (laughs) He was in the airport with Bernie in the 90s, before Bernie's celebrity heyday. And they upgraded him to a first class seat. And he turned to the woman next to him and he was like, oh, are you traveling alone? Where are you going? And she's like, oh, I'm going where you're going. And he's like, take my seat. And he went and sat in coach. I love King. him. <laughs> Just be more like Bernie. That's really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the real takeaway. What a guy. <laughs> uh, Kayla and I have often joked that I bring up Bernie like at least once every episode. So I'm glad that we were able to stick to that tradition. I took it on for you <laughs> yeah. this time. And I have not brought up A. Philip Randolph, but oh, let, shit. Let, let be this the moment. This be the moment that happens. Um, and. You know, another thing I thought about since I got to get this all out now, you know, on our intellectual culture, I mean, we 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 should not be afraid of any ideas. 
and afraid of discussing or debating them. And I mean, an example that came to mind is on the last Jackman show, I forget the name of the guest who came on um, from Heritage or American Heritage. <laughs> AEI, please AI, get your right wing think tank straight. Yes, it's true. We, yeah, on our last show, we had on Roy Teixeira, who um, he identifies as a social democrat, but he works right. at the American Enterprise Institute. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, maybe uh, he's salting there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that was a good, first of all, it's also more interesting to for those discussions. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just people in general are more interested in hearing that. I think that's part of the success of shows, I mean, like Breaking Points. Like, it is just interesting to have someone like Sagar there, even if... I don't always agree with him, but it, and it's also like, why are we, why would we be afraid to talk to these kinds of people? You know, and you also might just get a window into how maybe someone more centrist would be thinking about something and how we should a- appeal to that. But, you know, our, our intellectual culture should be as open as possible and we shouldn't be afraid of any ideas or, or debate. Um, and I think too often we are going as a left in the other direction of kind of having a very closed um, intellectual culture. All right. Well, I think on that note, uh, let's call it a day. Uh, great to see you guys as always. And because this is the last episode, I just want to say, you know, thank you to everybody who has watched the show, uh, whether you're just tuning in today for the first time or you've been with us from day one. Obviously, Paul, Ariella, and I have loved doing this uh, and, and we're still very much in the Jacobin family. So I'm sure you will see us from time to time. Uh, one last thing, guys, uh, can can people follow you anywhere? Paul Paul is on Twitter. Um, Paul, where can yeah. people Paul's follow you? Paul's the only you? one. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I was hoping I would be the last one, but um, <laughs> yeah, just at Paul-Prescott on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm not necessarily good at using Twitter, so mm-hmm. I can't promise you'll see anything good on there, but that that's where I am. Yeah. Um, Ariella, anywhere where people can follow you? <laughs> yeah, me, no. me neither. We're not on social media. I don't know. <laughs> You're either uh, going to like send her a letter. I can't or do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Car- carrier pigeon, like. Send I do word. take. I accept carrier pigeon. Yeah, old school Twitter. Yeah, we'll we'll refer people to the United States Postal Service for, for that one. Paul, Still, you're yep. you're on a roll. All of your fave <laughs> topics. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, again, thank you, everyone, and uh, good night.